Good morning, everyone. Good morning, church. So good to be here. My name's Austin. I'm a pastoral intern here. Um, and this morning, we're going to be continuing our journey uh, through the book of First Peter. Um, so far, in the last two weeks, we've covered the first five verses of chapter one of First Peter. Just the first five verses. You know, when you're, you're sitting on the train, you're traveling southbound uh, across the harbour bridge, and then you look out to the right, you've got the beautiful harbour beneath you, then the wonderful spread of the city as you look westward towards the horizon. Well, that's kind of what the first five verses of the chap- of uh, First Peter feels like. It's just beauti- beautifully phenomenal. It's amazingly glorious. But then, nearly without warning, the, w- the view disappears, doesn't it? The train carriage is engulfed in darkness as you enter the tunnel towards Wynyard Station. And that's kind of what verses 6 to 9 feels like. And so you you know what I mean. Let's uh, read from the beginning of the letter down to verse 9. So have your Bibles open. 1 Peter Peter 1 verses 1 to 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Here we go. We're about to... Enter the tunnel now. You guys ready? In this you rejoice, though, though now, for a little while, if, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be, may be found to result in praise and Glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would speak to us deep within our hearts. To those here who are suffering, who are going through trials, Lord, we pray that you may give them a word of comfort and a word of hope. For those who are here that are uh, at ease or in comfort at the moment, Lord, we pray that you would equip us with a robust framework, a new perspective for when sufferings come, because we know they will come, Lord. So, Lord, equip us, train us, teach us, grant us a vision this morning from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Cameron Cole. Cameron Cole. Cameron Cole became a Christian back in 1988. In 2005, he started working in his church's youth ministry, eventually becoming the youth director at the church that he was at. In 2007, Cameron married Lauren, and in 2010, they had their first child, Cam, named after himself. Then in 2012, they had their second child, a daughter by the name of Mary. On November 10th, 2013, he had one of the most delightful conversations that you can have with a three-year-old child, his son Cam. His son Cam had just lost a little toy uh, Lego axe, so the young boy asked his parents whether they could all pray together and ask Jesus to help them find a little toy axe. They prayed together, and they did, in fact, find Uh, the little toy axe. Excitedly, the young boy exclaimed, Oh, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you. This then led to a wonderful conversation, a wonderful spiritual conversation with this three-year-old boy, with the parents and the boy there. He asked at first uh, whether they could go see Jesus. They explained, not yet. Um, He asked whether he could drive to go see Jesus. And then he also went to ask whether they would meet Adam and Eve, eventually, when they got to heaven. Um, And the parents had an opportunity to explain to the young boy that we, like Adam and Eve, have all sinned, which is why God sent Jesus. This delightful conversation that they had came to a lovely conclusion when the young three-year-old son said something to the effect of this. "Jesus, Jesus died on cross? Jesus died my sins? It was just a a really sweet moment for Cameron and Lauren as parents. That night, Cameron then went on a short uh, overnight camp out as a youth leader with some other leaders and some students. But the next day, Monday, November 11th, Cameron awoke to three missed calls on his phone. Three missed calls. The phone rang again the fourth time, and he immediately picked it up. It was his wife, and her voice was filled with terror. He asked her, what, what's going on? What's going on? She replied, I, I can't tell you. you. You've just got to get to the hospital. You've just got to get to the hospital. He responded, honey, I can't drive 45 minutes not know, knowing what's going on. Tell me, what, what's going on? She, she replied, Cam is dead. You see, Lauren had found their perfectly healthy three-year-old child dead in his bed, an extremely, extremely rare case of sudden, unexplained death for a child over the age of one. I mean, just reading this story again, an avalanche of grief washes over me. As a parent, my heart just utterly, utterly sinks for Cameron and for Lauren. But if I dare linger on his story for just, just a little while longer, if I put myself into Cameron's situation, if I'm honest with myself, it's not just grief that enters into my heart, but also a nervousness. A nervousness enters into my heart. A nervousness about whether I could endure 
something like this, a worry about whether my faith will be able to stand in such a situation. Cameron Cole, in his book, Therefore I Have Hope, poignantly articulates this fear, this fear that he had even before this all happened. This is what he writes. It should come up on the screen. Like most people, my mind sometimes wanders to places of doom, to places where my imagination entertains what I perceive to be the worst. In my adult life, I had this mental journey enough times that my worst had developed with vivid detail. My worst was likely the same as that of many parents, the persistent fear that my child would die. But my worst had a second layer for me. I feared that if my worst occurred, I would lose my faith. I would turn my back on God and walk away from Christianity. And consequently, my spiritual failure would shatter the faith of hundreds of students to whom I had proclaimed the promises of Christ to for over a decade. You see, friends, our minds often run off They run off to approximate at what point, in what horrific circumstance, at what threshold our belief will crumble in the face of suffering. At what point our joy will be permanently drowned in sorrows. At what point our trust will be shattered by our trials. If you're anything like me, your natural instinct is to see belief and suffering, joy and and sorrow, trust and trials as two opposing forces like matter and antimatter in the universe, clashing and cancelling one another out until only one element remains. But my prayer, my prayer for all of us is that as we open up the scriptures this morning, the one idea that will take root in our souls is that it is actually not an either or. It's not an either or, but it is a both and. For the Christian faith, it is a both and. Both belief and suffering, both joy and sorrows, both trust and trials. In other words, the Christian life is found in the paradox that we have an inexpressibly awesome joy in a seemingly impossible context. Let me say that again. The Christian life is found in the paradox that we have an inexpressible joy in a seemingly impossible context. And to unpack this truth, I have seven points today. Yes, I apologize. Seven points. (laughs) Seven, the perfect number. One, the paradox. Two, the promise. Three, the present. Four, the period. Five, the possibilities. Six, the purpose. Number seven, the principle, the key principle. Point number one, the paradox. So the Oxford Dictionary defines paradox as a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition which, when investigated, may prove to be well-founded or true. May prove to be well-founded or true. You know, the longer that I walk in my 
Christian faith, the more that I see that so many of our truths are embedded in paradox. So many of our truths are embedded in paradox. Take, for example, the most obvious one that comes to our minds, the Trinity. Three persons, three persons in one God, each person distinct, yet each fully God. Perfect diversity, yet complete unity. Perfect diversity, yet complete unity. Or what about the hypostatic union? The hypostatic union where Jesus Christ is both fully God, yet also fully human. Where he was omniscient, yet limited in knowledge. Omnipresent, yet limited in location. Impeccable, yet still susceptible to temptation. I mean, if you think about it, even the gospel, the gospel is a paradox, isn't it? In the gospel, the ultimate bad news finds beautiful synthesis with the ultimate good news, right? This is how the Christianity Explored course puts it. The gospel is that we are more sinful, more sinful than we ever imagined, but more loved than we ever dreamed. That's paradox, In other words, we are more unlovable than we ever imagined, but more loved than we ever dreamed. Now come with me to 1 Peter 1, verse 6. This is the paradox that we are going to be diving into today. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so again, truth is encapsulated in this concept of paradox. Peter here describes for us a rejoicing people, yet also one who is grieved by various trials. Grieved, yet rejoicing? Before we unpack all the intricacies that are located in these verses, I just want to emphasize just how unique Christianity is in its ability to wholly grasp the full range of human emotions from the mountain peaks of rejoicing to the deep, dark valleys of sorrow. Christianity alone is able to fully lay hold of both and account for these two extremes, simultaneously and yet without compromise. No other worldview, no other worldview, philosophical system, or religion is able to so comprehensively account for the sheer breadth of both joy and sorrow, of ecstasy and agony. See, in the West, let's turn to the West. In the West, we pride ourselves for our secularism. Now, this word is often thrown around, but what does secularism actually mean? Well, the English word secular comes from the Latin word seculum. And seculum means age or generation. Age or generation. So secularism is, that, is the belief that this age, this generation is all that there is. All attention is now to be focused on this present moment, this present life, this present age. Secularism says that this, this is it. This is all there is, which is why this life, right here, right now, matters so much to the modern man. You've got one shot. You've got one shot to make this life your best life. And then that's it. That's it. You're done. Which then leads back to why secularism believes that suffering and sorrows and trials must be avoided at all costs. 
Have you wondered why we have more padded playgrounds than ever before? Have you ever wondered why the global usage of the word safe online has nearly doubled in just the last 20 years? We are obsessed with safe because this here now is it. Therefore, we must safeguard what we have now. But when suffering does come to those who have bought into this mindset, it takes an absolutely devastating form, doesn't it? In a framework that only accounts for life here and now, suffering, sorrows, trials can be nothing short of utterly catastrophic. It's utterly catastrophic. You see, friends, the West's prominent worldview is incapable, it's utterly inadequate in being able to account for suffering, sorrows, and trials. So let's turn to the East then. Let's turn to Eastern philosophy. What do we find? Well, in Buddhism, you have a whole system of belief whose teachings actually focus on the topic of suffering. So we must be able to find wisdom there, right? Yet what Buddhism actually teaches is that suffering is caused by our attachments, our attachments to sensual desires, to, to our beliefs, to our rituals, to who we think uh, we are. And so if the cause of suffering are these attachments, then freedom from suffering, freedom from suffering is when we rid ourselves of these attachments. We empty ourselves of these desires. You see, Buddhism teaches that suffering is just a mental construct. It's all up here. Unhealthy attachments of the mind. So where do we go? You turn to modern Western culture, and it will only drive you to anxiety, to make every precaution in your life to avoid suffering. But then you look to Eastern philosophy, and you discover an empty system of denialism where you are left with the lie that suffering is just a figment of your mindset. But Christianity, Christianity presents to us a hope-filled realism. It's a hope-filled realism. Peter describes in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, a people who are grieved yet rejoicing. Then we have the Apostle Paul, who speaks of himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I mean, think about it. We've got Easter just around the corner, don't we? What other world religion celebrates a series of events that plunges its followers into the depths of sorrow of Good Friday to only two days later lift them into the matchless triumph of Resurrection Sunday, or in the matter of three days? Of what other messianic figure was it said that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross? At the center, at the heart, at the crux of Christianity, you have a Messiah who was compelled by joy. He was compelled by joy to take our suffering and bear our shame. You know, it's often said that there will be no tears in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, that's not exactly true. It actually says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So Christianity isn't a denial. It's not in denial about your pain and your suffering. The God who collects your tears in his bottle, this is the realism part, will on that glorious day personally come and wipe away your tears. That's the hope part. 
Friends, Christianity is the only worldview that is able to grasp the depths of sorrow and the heights of joy in every single earthly circumstance that lies on that spectrum. Christianity is truth in paradox, a hope-filled realism about the life here and now. Point number two, the promise. The promise. So having seen the big picture that Christianity is truth in paradox and that they account for both grief and rejoicing, what I want us to do now is zoom in on what Peter describes, how Peter describes this paradox fitting all together. Let's start with the promise. So Peter begins verse 6 by saying this, In this, in this we rejoice. What exactly is the word this referring to? In this we rejoice. Well, the word this captures the entirety of God's promises of future glory. It captures all of it. It captures the full weight of all that is in store for us in the days to come. The promise in the word this captures the reason why we have, verse 3, a living hope. A hope that is eager, active, dynamic, expectant, and vibrant. The promise in the word this captures, verse 4, that we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance secured and guarded for us in the heavenly realms. The promise contained in the word this captures the sum totals of the glories of what verse 5 says is ready to be revealed in the last time, where it will be better than the Garden of Eden, where we will be unable to sin, where we would have unfettered intimacy with God and one another in perfect community where our hearts will have no idea what envy feels like or lust feels like anymore, no idea what betrayal or loneliness feels like anymore, where our eyes will behold unimaginable beauty, where the wolf will live alongside the lamb. Friends, if you could take, if you could take every atom and molecule, every star and galaxy and compress the mass of all creation into a single grain of sand. It will not compare to the weight of glory of what awaits us. It will not compare to the splendor of the new creation contained in the word this. And therefore, in this, in this, we rejoice. This is the promise. Which leads me to the next point, point three, the present. You know, friends, so glorious and so weighty is our future that will be revealed in the last time that rejoicing cannot just be contained for the future. It's not just the future thing. No, brothers and sisters, so real, so real is our joy for the future that it cannot help but spill over into the present. You see, Peter uses the present tense here. He doesn't say, you rejoiced, past tense. Nor does he say, you will rejoice, future tense. No, he says, in this you rejoice, present tense. In fact, Wayne Grudem, in his commentary, makes the case that it could even be translated, you are continually rejoicing, continuous present tense. But not only does Peter express this truth in present tense, he uses what is called a present indicative. Peter is, is simply giving a description of what the Christians he was writing to were like. It's not an imperative. Now, if it was an imperative, it would read something like this. In this, you ought to rejoice. 
No, it's simply a description of a Christian reality, not an exercise of apostolic authority. Let me say that again. It's not simply a dis- it's simply a description of a Christian reality, not an exercise of apostolic authority. Why? For this reason and this reason alone, if we honestly, truly, fully grasp the sheer weight, the grandeur, the magnificence, the excellence of what lies ahead, we have no need to be told. We have no need to be commanded. We have no need to be compelled to rejoice. No, it will just be a matter of fact that our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. And so the question... The question that begs to be asked at this moment is, how intense, how radiant, how brilliant is our vision of what God has in store for us in those last days? How much does your soul long for it now? I remember quite a few years back now, and we were sitting in small groups equivalent to our GCs here, and the topic for the evening was exactly this. It was the future glory that awaits us. I asked everyone a very similar question to the one I just posed, and I remember one young man's answer. He says that he somewhat does look forward to Jesus' return, but he added, not just yet. He had a few more things that he wanted to do in this life, more things that he wanted to tick off the bucket list. You see, his, see friends, his vision, his vision was neither glorious nor vivid. And why this is critical is, is because only a glorious, vivid vision of what awaits us, bubbling up within us and coming out in joy, will be able to counterbalance the inevitable suffering that we will face. You know, the next time that you walk past a commercial building site, actually from now on, every time that you walk past a commercial building site, I want you to stare upwards. Stare upwards. And look towards the crane. Because when you look towards the crane, look behind where the crane operator sits. Just behind where he sits. There's this cabin behind it. And you will see two massive blocks of concrete attached to the back of that crane. Two massive blocks of concrete. And the only reason that the crane is able to day in, day out, shift and lift the heavy burdens that it has to shift and lift is because of these massive counterweights attached to the back of it. And so likewise for us, it is only when we apprehend the weighty joy of tomorrow can we bear the burdens of today. Only when we apprehend the weighty joy of tomorrow can we bear the burdens of today. Let us move on to point four, the period. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials for a little while. For a little while. Not only does the nature of future glory surpass the heartache of current suffering, but the period or the length of time is incomparable. How can you compare 70, 80, 90, or even 100 years to eternity? They're incomparable. And Peter tells us that at best, it can only be called a little while, a little while. This is no different to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light, 
momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Momentary. I remember one time, you know, a missionary couple came to visit our small group and they gave us, you know, an update on all that they were doing, the people that they had befriended and started reading the Bible with, and even, you know, cultural adjustments that to make as part of their mission. But, you know, one of the most memorable moments from that evening came in the Q&A time at the end of the evening. Someone in our group asked how they were able to bear the cost and the sorrow of having to move away from elderly parents, of having to raise children in an atheistic, overtly atheistic environment, to have to worry about constant government surveillance, and to even struggle with persistent health issues due to the extremely poor air quality of the city that they were in. Then I remember the lady missionary. She stood up and she said this. She said, imagine a piece of string extending from my head, extending all the way to the back of the room, through the wall, and then circumnavigating the 40,000 kilometer circumference of the earth, coming all the way back around to the back of my head, through the back of my head, and connecting back up. She paused for a moment, and then she concluded, if this string, if this string represented eternity, my life, our lives, will not even register as a, as a speck on that string. And it's true, friends. As the commentator Thomas Schreiner puts it, believers rejoice suffering that they know that it will not persist forever. It strikes now, and yes, for a little while, but it will be swallowed up by the eschaton, or the, or the age to come. In other words, the pain will so thoroughly be consumed by the infinitude of the age to come. The next point that Peter gives us is point number five, the possibilities. Read with me. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here Peter tells us quite plainly that there are various trials. In other words, there's a vast number of possibilities in which suffering and sorrow and trials would arise in our life here in exile. You know, quite often folks will come to the letter of First Peter and read trials as just persecution. Trials equals persecution. But actually, Peter most likely, according to the scholars, wrote this before Nero's persecution ever occurred. On top of that, he explicitly tells us that these trials are various. The forms of these trials take undoubt- they include undoubtedly, yes, persecution, but they're more broad than just persecution. They are, in other words, manifold. I mean, just in this room alone, if God were to unravel for us right now all the different types of suffering and trials that are amongst us here, we would see just that unimaginably vast array of different struggles that we're all going through. And I just want to take a moment here, I just want to take a moment to to honor and to acknowledge all the trials and the struggles that you have faithfully endured as our church. Grief that ranges from those that have struck your life in a sudden moment to those, 
like a thorn in the side that plague you week after week, month after month, year after year. From the sufferings which are public and known to many of us to the silent hurt that hardly anyone knows about. From the grief that ranges from physical pain to the emotional anguish to those that have left relational scars. All of these, all of these constitute the various trials that Peter refers to here. Friends, as tempting as it is for me right now to list off a stereotypical list of sufferings for us to consider just for the purpose of giving you a sermon illustration, I think that that may run counter to what Peter's point is here, that there are various manifold trials in the Christian life. And I think there's a lesson here for us as well. As diverse, and we are a diverse church, as diverse and as different as we are as people, so too are the diversity of the trials that we face. What we might personally consider as just a small bump in the road of life might completely send our brother or sister into a complete tailspin in their lives. So let us not be quick to judge what constitutes a legitimate trial in someone else's life, but in gentleness and in eagerness to do what Paul commands us in Galatians. Let us bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, point six, the purpose. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that, so that the the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as you look upon these two verses, as you look upon these two verses, I direct your gaze to three words in particular. Verse 6, necessary. Verse 7, so that. Verse 6, necessary. Verse 7, so that. Necessary, so that. Necessary, so that. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, we must, we must remember, we must, we must, we must remember, we must remind ourselves constantly that everything that we go through, every suffering, every sorrow, every single trial that comes to us is because and only because it is deemed necessary for us by God. Everything that we go through is necessary. Nothing is arbitrary. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is random. Everything that you go through is God's plan A for your life. God never puts it in reverse, backs up, and rolls out plan B for your life. Never. In his sovereign wisdom, he never does that. I know that this teaching may be offensive to some of us here maybe even deeply offensive. You may be thinking, are you seriously telling me? Are you seriously telling me that God finds it necessary? That God finds it necessary that I go through what I'm going through right now in this particular season of grief and, and utter agony? 
Are you seriously telling me that? To which my reply would be, my gentle reply would be, if, if, if we are to trust God's word, if we are to trust God's word as he has, has given it to us, as he has given to us, the answer would be, yes, yes. Even through the deepest possible pain, may, may God grant us, may God grant us the grace to even just whisper, just to whisper, Father, Father, it hurts. It really hurts. But I trust you. But I trust you because, because you know my every need more than I do. You know what is necessary. I trust you. But why? But why are these trials necessary? Why are these trials necessary? What is the particular result that the Lord is wanting to achieve? So that, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are necessary for the purpose of revealing the praiseworthy, honorable, and glorious genuineness of your faith. As the metal ore is put into the crucible, so too are our lives. As heat is applied, so too do fiery trials come into our life. As the impurities float to the top, and are consumed by the fire, so too is everything that is not of faith in our lives. You see, brothers and sisters, the fiery trials, they're not meant to break us. They're not meant to break us. No, the total opposite. They're meant to make us. Consider what Edmund Clowney writes in his commentary. Trials. Trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. Rather, we should actually be glad for them. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and they drive us to our Savior. The fires of affliction or persecution will not, I repeat, will not reduce our faith to ashes. This is the key part. Fire does not destroy gold. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. And so my encouragement to us all this morning is to embrace the process Embrace the process. Yes, it hurts, but embrace the process. To embrace the means by which we are being refined. To even rejoice in the means because we are certain of the end. To rejoice in the means because we are certain of the end. 
Because on that glorious final day, I tell you what, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you could be given the keys to all the gold in Fort Knox. And it would not compare to the preciousness of the faith given to you by God and refined in you because of God. You know, I remember not too long ago when we became members of the church, much like the uh, ceremony, ceremony that we had last week, Pastor Dave asked, what are you excited about in terms of joining Sovereign Grace Church here? And I replied something like this. I said, I'm excited I'm excited to hear stories of how the gospel has been applied and lived out and shaped the lives of the 200-odd people that are here. That's what I said, in effect. And uh, one recent uh, Sunday afternoon, Ivy and I had the pleasure of exactly that. We were just hanging out with a brother and sister after lunch, um, and they shared with us just a really, really difficult situation in their lives. A really difficult situation. Really difficult and so trying that it actually upended family life for them in so many ways. After sharing the story with us, the dear sister, she stopped for a moment and then she added this. And this is pure gold. Pure gold. She said, but do I wish, but do I wish that we didn't have to go through that? No. No. No, not at all. As painful as it was, as difficult as it was, she said, God was refining me and drawing me into a deeper trust in him. Pure gold. Oh, friends, let us embrace the process, for there indeed is a glorious purpose in it all. Finally, we come to point seven, the principle. The principle. So at this point, you may be thinking, yes, I really do see that Christianity is a beautiful paradox. I really do trust in the promise that we have a glorious future. I I truly do see that this period in our lives does not compare to eternity. I really do see that there's a vast range of possibilities of how trials may come into our lives. I really do trust that there is a glorious purpose for the trials that we endure. But, but, like Cameron Cole What if, just what if, my faith crumbles in the face of suffering? What if, what if my trust gets shattered by the trials? To which Peter replies with verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, Peter here is reminding us of the miracle of the underlying principle, the miracle of the underlying principle of our faith. He is reminding us that the key principle that we must keep in mind is that even our faith is a gift from God and a work of God. Of God. Our faith is a gift from God and a work of God. I mean, remember who is speaking to us in this letter. This is the Apostle Peter, who basically he lived with the incarnate Son of God for over three years of his life. He ate with him, he camped out with him, he witnessed all his miracles, he ran to see the empty tomb, and he even had breakfast on the beach with the risen Christ. 
Now, when Peter declares to Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, his faith, he declares his faith. This is what he says. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He declares that. But how does Jesus answer him? Jesus said, blessed are you. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, Peter, you didn't figure this out for yourself, right? Despite, despite having spent so much time with Jesus, Jesus him here is telling him, your faith, your faith is a miracle. It's a gift from heaven. Now then, what does Peter do now in this letter? He turns around to us and he says, you folks, me included, you folks, you weren't even there in the years which Jesus walked on the earth. And even now, who here? Who here has met Jesus in the flesh? So if my faith was a miracle of heaven, how much more is your faith a miracle of heaven? You have not seen him, yet you love him. You still do not see him, yet you believe in him. Oh, brothers and sisters, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled whether your faith will stand in the day of trial. Remember always the underlying principle that holds this whole paradox together. Our faith is the gift from God and a work of God. I mean, every word, every ounce of Peter's words to us so far screams this to us in the first nine verses. Verses one and two. Who? He elected us. Verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. Verse 4, he keeps for us in heaven our inheritance. Verse 5, he guards our salvation through faith. Verses 6, 7, and 8, and this faith will not be destroyed in the fiery trials, but in fact is purified and refined through it so that we can rejoice with inexpressible joy that, verse 9, we will most certainly obtain the outcome, the end result of such a faith, and that is the salvation of our souls. Oh, brothers and sisters, God has got this. He's got this. He's got you. He's got this. God has got this completely covered from beginning to the end. And so as I close today, let me, let me just finish by reading the accounts of how Cameron Cole responded to his wife, Lauren, the moment that he received the tragic news of his son's sudden death. This is what he writes in his book. But the Lord, the Lord put a word in my mouth that surprised me. Who put a word in his mouth? The Lord put a word in his mouth that surprised him. When Lauren delivered the tragic news, I said to her, Lauren, Christ is risen from the dead. God is good. This doesn't change that fact. God gave me faith. God gave him faith and hope while he stood squarely in the middle of his worst. And so it is indeed that the Christian life is found, is found in the paradox that we have an inexpressible joy even in a seemingly impossible context. Let us pray. Father God, oh, Father God, you've got us. You've got us. You've got us covered from beginning to the end. And therefore, we come to you. 
We come to you, even in the midst of our trials, we come to you right now and we say, we trust you. We trust you, Lord. We trust you. Have your way in our lives. Refine us. Purify us. Make our faith pure gold. And on that glorious day, on that glorious day, we will behold, because of your goodness towards us, a pure faith faith that you have given to us and refined in us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.